0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen folks and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme...
1: The United Nations has warned that Somalia is suffering its worst drought in 40 years. Two boys, twins, they're one-year-old. They're malnourished severely, the children and the mother. And she walked for 160 kilometres or so to read an area where there is some food distribution.
2: They joined hundreds of thousands of people who were leaving their homes for makeshift camps. But there wasn't enough food or water in the camp either.
3: We have seen observed decreases in rainfall in the last uh, few years. We see a decreasing amount of rainfall from 2 to 7 percent per decade from 1983 to 2010.
2: We traveled to Sirigi, a village that has something armed groups want and villagers need a well abundant in water. Could we imagine actually countries or regions fighting over access to water as the water becomes more and more precious?
0: Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. In today's programme, we're going to talk about water, the lack of it, Climate change and food insecurity. Lots of our listeners will know that UN aid agencies have been warning for most of this year about growing hunger in parts of Africa. Now, those warnings are becoming a very harsh reality. To join me, I'm really pleased to welcome Rania Dagash, UNICEF's Deputy Regional Director for Eastern and Southern Africa, Bob Stefanski, Specialist in Climber, Water and Agriculture at the World Meteorological Organization, and our regular analyst, Daniel Warner. Bob, I'm going to come to you first because the WMO has been watching prolonged drought in the Horn of Africa. And recently, the WMO warned that the next rainy season, which actually isn't due till October, could also fail. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
3: Yes. So we have a group of regional climate centers and a lot of major weather services, for example, the UK Med Office. NOAA from the United States, Japan, China, et cetera, they all make seasonal forecasts. And unfortunately, they're all consistent, even though the reliability out for another six months is not great, that the September-November forecast for Eastern Africa is, again, for below-normal rainfall. So again, this is potentially the the fifth year in a row of below-normal rainfall. Again, the, the models are consistent. We don't rely on one model. The confidence, again, of these models out to six months is relatively low. But what gives us concern is that there's consistency, high consistency among the models for the September-November period uh, in 2022 coming up.
0: Rania, let me bring you in there because you are already seeing the consequences, aren't you, of the droughts
1: that have already happened? Absolutely, imagine Yes. I visited Somalia a few weeks ago and I went to the drought-affected areas and uh, I visited the area called Dono, which is on the border with Ethiopia, where tens of thousands are um, displaced. They move from their villages because their crops have failed, their livestock have died. And they walk for 100 to 300 kilometers was the range of, of these different um, uh, IDPs I interviewed. One of the strongest maybe memories I I have from that visit is a mother of two uh, boys, twins, they're year old. she's pregnant, they're malnourished severely, the children and the mother, and she walked for 160 kilometres or so to reach an area where there is assistance, where there is water that we set up, where there is some food distribution, where there is a small school, now, she is one of the lucky few that made it because many could not come out and make it that long. And some of those who did also lost their children along the way. It's, it's really um, a very desperate situation. And there were many fresh graves in these displacement camps. The children, when they're malnourished and then are exposed to disease, measles and cholera are now increasingly rampant. It's a killer combo.
0: Danny, I know you wanted, you've wanted for a while to do a, a podcast about water and the lack of it. What's your response to what you're hearing?
2: Well, obviously, the situation is horrific and it's difficult to imagine, but it's also extremely complex. I mean, both Bob and Rania are talking about drought, but on the other hand, there's also inflation, rising prices. There's the Ukraine War, There's internal instability, if not civil war, in some of these countries. So really, we're not only talking about drought and water when we're looking at certain countries in Africa today.
0: That's what I actually wanted to get into because I want to look at these other factors. The head of the UN World Food Programme has warned of another threat on the horizon.
3: Uh, at the same time, while we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're also on the brink of a hunger pandemic
0: the climate crisis could lead to an extra 183 million people facing hunger by 2050 as our warming planet affects how food is grown and distributed. Bob, first question, of course, is related to the drought. I mean, it, it's unusual, I think. I think we've had four successive failed rainy seasons in Somalia. Is this climate change?
3: So WO has a, a regional partners, we call them regional climate centres again, But as important, you know, we we look at FAO, the World Food Program, and and many other organizations, and we give them advice and input. Again, this is the, the, we haven't seen this in the last 40 years, and this is what our partners say in the region. If we do look at the IPCC reports, and we look at this area of northeastern Africa, we call it East Africa, the Horn of Africa, we have seen observed decreases in rainfall in the last few years. And also, um, we're expecting to see that to continue. And really more specifically, we see a decreasing amount of rainfall from 2 to 7% per decade from 1983 to 2010. Again, this is reported from the March to May, what we call the long rain season in East Africa. So there is some basis there that we see observed reporting from the IPCC, which is a collection of reports from many sources. So there is a slight decrease in rainfall, and we, we do see that that may continue in the future. Also. Again, as I think I mentioned before, the issue with climate change is that as the air temperature increases, it can hold more water, which means more water could evaporate, but also more water can fall as well. So also the long-term projections do show actually increased chances of heavy precipitation. So this concept of having more droughts, uh, more frequent droughts and floods, is actually quite consistent on a physical basis because the air warms up, it holds more water, more water could evaporate, but of course more water can fall from the sky. So that's what we're seeing.
0: Rania, it must fill you and your colleagues with real concern when you're already struggling with reduced budgets, we'll come on to that subject as well in a moment, to hear from Bob that the long-term forecast is the next rainy season could also fail.
1: Absolutely. In fact, you know, I am from the region, Imogen, and um I remember droughts when I was a child, Uh, they would come far and few between, you know. Um, And I remember every 10, 15 years, we would have a drought. But over the last period, I would argue we're seeing them so consistently. And in part, maybe because people's coping mechanisms have been totally depleted. They've lost livestock and they've lost crops and they can't make it up between one drought and the other now because they're so short-spanned and they're coming more frequently. So Somalia, for one, this is the third drought in 10 years and 2010 was a famine. So we are seeing it and we are concerned and we are working not just to save lives of children today, but to try to build a more resilient response.
0: Danny, I saw you had your hand up there.
2: Yeah, I'm interested, Bob and Rania, in competition for water. Could we imagine actually countries or regions fighting over access to water as the water
3: becomes more and more precious? So one thing we work on, WMO, and many, many partners, we have actually over 40 partners working on what we call integrated drought management. And this is called, we're trying to prepare countries. So first of all, the work that Rania does is extremely important. I mean, that the response is needed. But of course we have to go beyond that, right? We need to prepare countries for the next event. The issue that we face, we have tropical cyclones, hurricanes, they occur every year, we'll have summer thunderstorms every year, so people are used to that, they can prepare, they can adapt to the warnings or they listen to the warnings. Drought is what we call a slow onset event, and they only occur maybe once every few times during a decade or during over 20 years. So people might react and then forget about it a few years later and that preparedness is not there. So one thing we really try to do is help countries prepare a policy, a drought policy, a drought plan to help them become resilient. And the issue here is that if there's a current drought situation, they have practices in place, so they're not more vulnerable for the next event. And this is crucial. I think Rania has said also that in the past, um, they've had drought events now and then, but of course they're becoming more frequent. And we do see that. Of course, that makes it um, helping countries become resilient much more difficult.
1: Yeah, I'll add to that maybe a little bit. I, You know, the region that is affected has a lot of pastoralists that live there, and agro-pastoralists for that matter. And while climate change in itself doesn't cause conflict, we are certainly seeing it as an exacerbating factor, and where conflict over water has increased, for sure, for those that move with their, with their uh, livestock. So it does create potential for more conflict. But in terms of our resilient response, one of the things UNICEF is really good at, it's needs in providing access to clean water and reliable sanitation to promote basic hygiene practices in rural, in urban areas, and in emergencies like this. And we have toyed with resilient, climate resilient water and sanitation. In southern Ethiopia, we've dug boreholes up to 600 meters down because we've mapped out the aquifers. And the communities that access that are safer from the drought today than others that we haven't been able to reach because it's so expensive to do that. It isn't just a well of 10, 20 meters, it is 600. And part of the areas we've mapped in Somalia are going to require us to drill Up to one to two kilometers, if we want to do this for a more sustainable water. So we are working towards it. Getting the resources for it is is a different matter because it's very expensive.
0: Danny, again, I see you wanted to. You have something to say. Number one,
1: should we, given the fact that droughts seem to be
2: continuing, anticipate having more climate refugees and people moving? And also politically, when Rania talks about drilling in certain countries, politically you don't have access to all areas. Uh, Somalia would be one, I would imagine.
1: We actually have access in a lot of places, um, you know, across Somalia and Ethiopia and and even northern Kenya, the affected ones. Um, But resource has been the the shortfall there, I, I would argue. But in terms of when people don't have water the first coping mechanism is movement. And that's why we see so many displaced in Somalia and in other places. Now, in previous years, we would see even movement across borders. We're not seeing so much of it this time, but the situation can deteriorate very fast, and then even that will change. I think you raise a more fundamental point, which is, are the livelihoods of these pastoralists and agro-pastoralists sustainable and I think that's a bigger policy question that governments have to reckon with very soon.
2: Abdullahi Abdi Mohammed was a farmer until all his crops died.
1: The mass movement of people across Somalia grandparents, children, neighbors leaving their homes.
0: This is actually on my, my list of questions, too. And I wanted to ask you, Bob, since you are also a specialist in, in agriculture. We have also parts of of Africa dependent on grain imports, and we'll come to the Ukraine factor of that in a moment. But if these regions are so affected by climate change that they can't produce what they traditionally produced to feed themselves, is there going to have to be a radical change, different crops, or even could these areas become uninhabitable?
3: It's a very good question. Again, this is a a long-term issue. So just to be clear to the audience, you know, this is not like this year we're going to plant uh, corn or maize, and next year we'll be planting nothing. You know, it, it's going to be over a long period of time. There might be more droughts or even more rain, depending on the situation. So the key here is connecting the, the in, interacting with the local stakeholders, the farmers, the farmers' organizations. There's agricultural extension agencies in many countries and seeing what they're doing and seeing how they're talking to farmers. And then looking at the projections ahead and then connecting this to the agricultural research centers that are in the region in East Africa and see if they can maybe start with developing more resilient or more uh, drought resilient crops for the first hand. So, again, it's very hard to change some of the practices, the eating practices um, in in each region of the the world. Um, So we want to make sure that people have the same crops that they're always used to. But can we make them more drought resilient? Can we maybe introduce drip irrigation or more water-efficient ways of growing the crops? Also, one thing we're working very hard on is looking at the seasonal climate forecast and can we give them better advice? So maybe we give them a sense that the season will be near normal. Maybe there's more water than, than usual and they can plant more area to a certain crop. Or if we think it's going to be below normal, they can cut back and maybe change the percentage of crops that maybe with something with more drought resilience. So these are all the practices, and this is what we call climate smart agriculture, of trying to integrate the climate and weather into practices for the the local farmers. And this is an integrated uh, practice across climatologists, meteorologists, agronomists, and farmers, and and all that support system of trying to do that in, in a better way. And one thing we're also recognizing is a lot of farmers look at traditional knowledge And uh, again, this is actually, um, you know, science, it's long term observation over years. But the problem is with climate change, that those statistics over the long term are changing. So again, we really need to interact with the local stakeholders to provide them the best information um, from the local source and doing what we can from the international sense, providing them training and the best forecast that we can.
0: Most of northern Africa and the Middle East depend on cheap wheat imported from Ukraine. But supplies of the grain were cut off after Russia invaded.
2: Halima, her daughter, and a friend are picking Muket in 45 degree heat. Their okay, refugee okay. rations have been cut by more than half.
0: Let's look specifically at Russia invading Ukraine. Rania, it's a double whammy, isn't it, for aid agencies? You've got rising food and fuel prices for the things you need to buy to bring help to people, and you have from what i understand a lo- awful lot of attention now being diverted to ukraine away from the growing severe hunger that you're seeing every day
1: absolutely ukraine did really three things it diverted global attention from what would have been a lot stronger uh, today given the the malnutrition rates and and the just the levels of admissions of children with severe acute malnutrition. And by the way, this is one of the key signs that the situation is slipping towards a very dangerous zone. Um, So we certainly are very concerned because of the diverted visibility. We're concerned because of the diverted resources that are going to Ukraine. And and further yet, uh, we've heard from some of our key donors that they are redirecting ODA into their own response in their countries to the Ukraine crisis. So the Secretary General has also spoken to, to this, and it's a it's a huge setback for us. And then the prices and the hiking prices and fuel make it simply unaccessible for people who are already extremely vulnerable. Bear in mind that the first line of defense always in crises like this is the host communities, the neighbors, the people from the towns where the space comes into, and they themselves aren't able to access um, food and water. So how do, how do they help? They've helped as much as they can, but they need external support. They need us all to be present and to respond.
0: Danny, I mean, you've watched uh, the humanitarian community in Geneva for many years now, and we often see competing projects competing or too many needs for the, the funding that's Available. Does this seem worse to you?
2: Well, I think it's getting more complicated. And I want to come back to something, Randy, you said. Supposing a certain donor comes to you and says, here's money for this project, you have to work with the government. In certain areas where you work, you have to admit there's a certain instability in the government, or there are political implications. Just as from the donor community, they have their own politics, the receiving countries have also problems. How does this affect what you do in giving aid and assistance
1: to the people in need? We work with the governments everywhere. It's a fundamental principle, actually, um, uh, to our response. Even in Somalia, where um, there was a transition government, that has now been settled. A new uh, government and and president has been elected. They've already appointed a special envoy for the drought, who's actually been touring with the UN and the president himself has gone around to visit those displaced by the drought. So they're giving this a lot of attention. Now, their resources may be limited, which is why it takes a collective effort for the international community, the United Nations, the NGOs, the local NGOs who are the backbone of this operation, truly, and uh, the governments to work together. But across the region, all affected countries have declared an emergency because of the drought conditions. And that makes it much easier to identify the most vulnerable districts where we all need to converge and respond. And there's even a famine prevention strategy that the UN has put in place in Somalia, because this is no longer a drought response for us in Somalia. It is famine prevention. We've seen famine in 2010-11. In we lost 250,000, the bulk of which were children. And we just simply can't see that again. Well, one of the reasons we're doing this topic today is because the
0: WMO briefed my colleagues, journalists in Geneva, on the prospect of another failed rainy season in Somalia and what that could mean. Now, there was a time, I fondly imagine, where that might have made headlines around the world. Are you also finding that there's so much attention on the the conflict in Ukraine that some of the things you're saying are are slipping below the radar?
3: Yes, this is, you know, again, I think as human beings in general, we're, we are re- reactive, you know, even at a, let's say a personal level of, of financial planning and things like this. Some of us do a better job and then we can translate this into government situations. I mean, one issue that we find, so we can advocate to a government to do certain practices, but of course, the mandate of a government might be four years or eight years. But again, as you talk about the occurrence of droughts, it may be you know one or two during a time period, and people might forget. Um, so it's a constant challenge of, of making sure that the countries are aware of all the different practices and, and and tools they can have to do this. Of course, the conflict in Ukraine is going to make our our attention, but also things like that are, are also a a wake up call. I think to policymakers that maybe we need to do certain things on the energy level. Maybe we shouldn't rely on the food supply for maybe only one country. We should try to get diverse sources of grain. I know this is a big challenge for the World Food Program. Of course, it's easier for them to get grain from Ukraine because it's right there to East Africa. Also, maybe some sources from Africa to ship grain from the United States. It costs much more money. But of course, this is talking with colleagues from FAO and the World Food Program. Um, the Ukraine conflict is a, is a double whammy. Harder to get crops from the region from you know Eastern Europe. It also costs more. Fuel costs have now really skyrocketed. So it's really putting the response effort that Rania is deeply involved in under deep stress.
1: Rania, did you want to add to that? I did. I think you know our ask for life saving is is quite critical and it's very time sensitive. But where we have been calling on the G Seven and calling on the entire world for that matter is the investments have to also go in parallel into long term resilience, particularly supporting communities with climate and water, sanitation, hygiene, and nutrition, building systems of government, strengthening those so that we are able to basically shock proof these communities that we know are in this belt that is continuously affected. Even after this response ends, we know for a fact we will be having this conversation again in two years. So any investment we make on the long term pays off. It pays off by saving lives. It pays off by saving children. It pays off by protecting. And it pays off by protecting entire communities. And we don't like to come back and ask for money all the time, nor do the people we support. You know, they're highly dignified in their really difficult position where they rely on, on on the response of others. And we extend that with absolute dignity and, and full support of, of the communities. But it's really a difficult position if we are not augmented with the longer term uh, resources. The World Bank has recently, sorry, just announced a 385 million response to the drought affected areas that's the type of support we want to see more of, and really a huge shout-out for making this investment. Now, others have to follow suit as well.
2: Yeah, Rania, when you talk about 380000000 million, I'm looking at the military aid and assistance coming into Ukraine, uh, and the numbers are quite different.
3: Quite different. We don't have half the money we need to reach the people around the world that are literally marching toward starvation. Do we take food from the children that are hungry to get to the starving? That's not fair. Don't ask us to take food from the children of Ethiopia to feed the children of Ukraine.
0: I'm really pleased to be having this conversation because, as I think you all know, these topics often are reduced to a 45-second news bulletin. And it's really good to be able to go in-depth. Some of the factors causing the warnings coming from aid agencies like UNICEF. I wonder if I could ask each of you what your urgent priority or key solution would be. Is it really seriously tackling climate change? Is it immediately funding these emergency appeals for places like Niger, Somalia, which are less than 50% funded the last time I looked? Is it focusing on getting a solution, ending this conflict in Ukraine? Is it all three? And is that over ambitious? Bob, I think I'll start with you.
3: It's As usual with with most things, it's not one simple solution. So I think the immediate concern is really the assistance, uh, the response, the food response for Eastern Africa, uh, the work that Rania does. That has to be the first response. As she talked about, there's malnutrition increasing and that. That has to be responded to quickly. But then next, I think it's diversifying maybe the the food chain, the food sources, and then tackling climate change. You know, we, we know what we need to do. We've been hearing from the IPCC. My organization does an annual report on the status of the climate. And, you know, each year it gets a bit warmer. And it's not, that's not changing. Then finally, I'll connect it back to preparedness. You know, a dollar spent in prevention is worth, you know, five times that um, in in doing something afterwards. So we we know this as a fact. So I would say those three things, immediate food assistance, working on climate change. We know what we need to do on on several fronts there. And then really working hard on prevention and preparedness, I think, is really uh, key as well.
2: Danny? Well, I think we've gotten to a point in Geneva where the silos of the organizations have become accentuated. And what we look at is for a more holistic overview of these problems, because as Bob said, there are multiple aspects to what's going on. And hopefully someone can take charge and say, we have to look at this as a holistic problem and not just one crisis about A or B.
0: Rania, I'm going to give the last word to you, because you are there in the region that is suffering drought and the consequences of hunger, what would be your key demands or your key solutions?
1: I think the the simple answer is we are used to this kind of response. We've done it before. We succeeded in 1617 when there was a drought in the region. And we succeeded because we worked together as an international community and a humanitarian community. And I can't separate my response, uh, Imogen, to be fair. It has to be life-saving and resilience and development. The investment has to be multi-layered to save children and communities. And our ask isn't even big. What we're doing is responding with the resources we have now, but it is far from enough. We're asking for basically 850 million to attempt to put in place both life-saving and resilient support across the region. As you said, when you compare that to, to other asks, it's not big at all. And we work together. You know, the World Food Programme works with UNICEF very closely. The Food and Agriculture Organisation works very closely together. The NGOs work closely with UNICEF. We all work quite well together. It's just the resources that are a gaping hole at this point.
0: Well, on that note, I will remind our listeners, in case they want to mention it, um, to their Governments that the appeals for Somalia, for Niger, for South Sudan are very underfunded, and the life saving rations that UNICEF and the World Food Programme give to children in those regions have had to be cut. Sorry to end on such a depressing note, but I think it's really important to remind people of what's happening. Bob Stefanski. Rania Dagash and Daniel Warner, thank you very much for joining us here on Inside Geneva. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at Swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes, from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now its 75, to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening. And do join us again on Inside Geneva.
1: Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site, and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, Satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.